Okay, our scripture reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that as we open your word, um, God, that you would speak to us through it. God, as we try to apply the life of uh, Lottie Moon um, and, and uh, uh, see the similarities between it and the way this text um, plays out in terms of the, the personal testimony of Paul, um, God, we ask that you would use it. God, that you would bless exactly what you uh, we read last week. Um, that as we remember our leaders, as we consider their lives, as we imitate um, the way they finish the race, um, God, that you would use this time to to bless us to that end, that we would see, um, God, the the care, um, the sacrifice, and the dedication of Lottie Moon um, to, to the cause of Christ, that you would use that to embolden us and... Um, God, grow us in, in that area, um, of, of our faith. Um, we pray that you would do that. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. So, um, this is our sort of all saints sermon last week. We, if you were here or, uh, we did sort of a, a more generic, um, kind of idea about, about, uh, um, the idea of why we should study, um, the, the lives of, um, believers who have come before us, um, and not just why we should, um, but the biblical mandate to remember our leaders, to consider their lives, and to imitate uh, their their that, that the outcome of their lives. Remember that word that we said that sort of means not only the way you came to the end of your life, but the goal that you got to, and sort of the that whole idea of of the way they ran and finished the race. And and so we're commanded to do that. And so we're going to do it this week. Um, with a little lady um, who, jokingly, we sometimes call the patron saint of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, even though the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't have patron saints. But if we did, it would probably be this lady whose name was Charlotte Diggs Moon, or more commonly, everybody remembers her by her nickname, Lottie. Now, here's the deal. When we read that passage that we just saw from from the book of of uh, letter to Timothy, Paul is basically recounting his own personal testimony, talking about his own life and his own conversion. But one of the neat things about that passage is I think many of us can read it and hear our own testimonies in it in a way, and that's because there's something um, that, that, that is common to the experience that we all have at a level of in terms of conversion of terms of coming to Christ and recognizing what Christ has done in our lives. And I think that is particularly true with the testimony of, of Lottie Moon. 
And so what I want to do is kind of do what I always do with these. We're just going to kind of run through a, a overview of her life, drawing out a few places where we see the, this text illustrated particularly in her life. So again, I think probably Lottie is, is she might be in Southern Baptist circles, at least people who are aware of personalities from the history of Southern Baptist faith. She's probably the most well-known person other than maybe Billy Graham, right? Not maybe. Billy Graham's more, more well-known. But, but other than that, Lottie takes on a, a, a huge role in, in Southern Baptist thought and mentality and ethos. Maybe not necessarily in, in terms of things like theology and things like that, but in terms of energy and mission and focus, she, she plays an oversized role. So, uh, again, Charlotte Diggs Moon was born in 1840 in Virginia. Um, she uh, was born to there at her family estate, um, which the family had had for generation. They had a tobacco plantation um, that went back generations. They basically lived in the, in the community with characters like Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe. Okay, and so this is a family that goes back to to early colonial kind of uh, years, and, and you can imagine um, the, the life that she kind of grew up in. Um, her father, though, died when she was 11 years old, which kind of changed the situation. They still lived there on their, on their estate, but, but it kind of changed. It made their lives a little more precarious and their futures a little more uncertain um, at that point. Um, she was diminutive in, in many ways. She was famously only four foot three. So I don't even, Alice, how tall are you? You don't know. Yeah, Alice is five foot tall, right? Okay, so she was, I mean, she was a, she was a very small lady. Uh, the stories say that oftentimes she would sit in chairs and her feet would not touch the ground when she sat in chairs. They would just hang off the end. Um, so she was very small and diminutive in stature, but then at the same time, she was popular, uh, studious, intellectual, outspoken, headstrong, witty, um, and even a prankster, um, uh, to a large extent. Um, there was a, a, a famous incident where uh, a friend of hers at school asked her what the D of her middle name stood for, and she said, devil. Um, and then from then on, people called her devil, okay? And that was like a nickname because she was this sort of rebellious kind of um, uh, irreverent, even heretical kind of personality in, in the community and in her school. Um, although she came from a family of staunch, committed Baptists, she had no interest in Christianity. She was not a believer um, and even had an antagonistic spirit towards it as, as a teenager into her, her late teens and, and early years. And so um, we notice in this passage that Paul basically recounts a similar standpoint from uh, of, of his life and, and character before he came to Christ. In verse 12, he says... Um, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Okay, so, so Paul reminds us that at his conversion, he was not just neutral to Christ, right? But he was an opposer of Jesus Christ. He was a blasphemer of Jesus Christ. Lottie's testimony was, was similar in some ways. So an interesting little uh, situation occurs. A local 
pastor of a congregation there named John A. Broadus. And so if you know anything about Southern Baptist history, you might recognize that name. He was one of the founding professors of Southern Seminary, the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention. He was the second president of that institution. Um, he held a series of revivals there at a congregation um, in, in the area, and the urgency of, of foreign missions was sort of the theme for, for that um, uh, a series of, of messages. Well, Lottie decided that she and her friends were going to go with the express intention to mock the proceedings. She was going to go in and make fun of all these stupid people there talking about Jesus and the mission and all these things like that. And so she went to this meeting, but something incredible happened. Instead of going there and mocking the proceedings, that night, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, she got saved, okay? And and it just is a great reminder, right? And when we know this in our hearts, because we've seen it happen in, in numerous times in our lives, that there are people who are violent opponents of Jesus Christ, and yet the Holy Spirit can change those people's hearts in a moment and turn them into incredible witnesses and, and servants of God. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit did with Paul. And it's what he did with Lottie Moon. And so friends, family, professor, professors noticed an immediate change in her disposition, her attitude, her focus, the way she um, acted and, and, and presented herself. And the question was, what is God going to do with this brilliant, strong-willed, dedicated follower of Jesus Christ now? Because it was an interesting time in, in kind of American history, all right? So... Typically in the South, if you were a woman, um, most of your energy and most of the focus of your, of your life and training and education was focused on marriage and family, right? You were, you were taught things that would help you, um, be, get a good husband and, and, and keep a good house. And so, um, while that was certainly true in her family also, there was also a very high priority placed on education in, in her house, both for the sons and for the daughters. And so, Several of the moon children, particularly the daughters, distinguished themselves in their generation. So first off, her sister Oriana um, would be one of the first female physicians from the South, okay? Um, a, a, a woman who achieved a, a, a doctor's degree and performed medicine, particularly during the, during the Civil War, as a field uh, medic. Um, uh, Lottie attended several schools, the Virginia Female Seminary, which later became Hollins University, and then later on Albemarle Female Institute, where she excelled in languages, um, becoming proficient in Latin, Greek, French, Italian, Spanish, and then later Hebrew and Chinese. She was the f one of the first women in the South to receive the equivalent of the master's degree. Okay, so again, um, a, a unique woman, one of um, that, that same pastor, John Broadus, who ended up uh, co-founding Southern Seminary, called her the most educated woman in the South. Okay, and so, so a, a woman who had distinguished herself in, 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 uh, in her generation. She would end up being a school teacher because that was, again, one of the kinds of jobs that was open to, to women in that context. It, she had a school in Virginia. In Kentucky, later, she and her friend Ann Safford started a, uh, a school in Cartersville, Georgia, uh, a girls' school there, um, to, to minister to girls because, again, it was an interesting time. So she was born in 1840. If you know your history, you know what happened about 21 years later, and that was the American Civil War. 
And so all these years leading up to the war, the weird years of the war and the, and the years proceed or, or following the war, um, we're starting to open up new opportunities for women. We, we kind of forget about the fact that as the, as the women's movement advanced, part of the reason why that advanced at that time is because three quarters of a million men were dead because of the war. war. Um, tens of thousands, probably millions more were disabled because of the war. And so all of a sudden there was a need for women to do things that they had never done before because there was a, a shortage of, of men in, in many situations. And so all during this time, as she's teaching, as she's, as she's faithfully being, um, connected to different churches, God was stirring in her heart, not only an interest in missions, but the support of missions. And in her Bible, uh, that, that they still have, um, she wrote a line and it said, words fail to express my love for this holy book and my gratitude for its author, for his love and his goodness. How shall I thank him for it? And so she was, it was, it was on her heart to say, what can I do in return for the great mercy and grace that God has shown me in my life? We see that idea pop up in verse 14 of this passage. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So Paul is acknowledging in that passage the connection between the missionary heart, right, the evangelistic zeal that that he has to win um, the Mediterranean world for Christ, and he's connecting that with the recognition of the great mercy that we have been shown in Jesus Christ. The great recognition that what Christ has done by saving us, saving me, and then what that should elicit in my heart, what should that make me think and do and be in response to that. The gospel fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, that's how Paul feels, and again, I think we all can feel that way sometimes, becomes the impetus for him to take the gospel to the nations, and particularly places where it had never been before. Paul talks about the idea if he wants to go to Tarshish, which is the end of the world, and we see the same thing working out in Lottie's life also. So again, foreign missions was kind of in the air in the 1840s and 50s and 60s. Um, missionary societies were arising in various denominations. Remember we talked about, I can't remember when, but recently the Haystack Prayer Revival had been a generation before. Um, missionaries who had gone to India and to China were, were household names, people like William Carey, who we've talked about before, and, and Adoniram Judson, who we've talked about before. And, and, and as the world got smaller with, with tra uh, travel becoming more easy in different ways, the great lostness and the great vastness of the lostness of the world population began to be more apparent. Places like Africa and India where there was a gospel deficiency and yet hundreds of millions of souls living in these places. Lottie was increasingly struck by the necessity of the missionary endeavor. She was a mission supporter um, all during this time. She was praying. She was giving um, when it came to, to missions. 
um, long before she ever decided to go to the missionary field. And so, again, we may not, any of us, who knows, we may not be called to be cross-cultural missionaries. We may not be called to, to um, pick up our lives and, and move to a foreign country. And, and yet, we are all called with this urgency of the gospel message going to the nations, right? That is something that should be in all of our hearts, that we should all be prayerfully concerned with and and giving towards and encouraging uh, uh, towards. What we have to realize is that this was an era, um, though, that the, the thing that made it strange, and, and despite how much she had an interest and a desire to go to um, to to serve in the missions world, um, this was an era where single women uh, were not appointed as missionaries. That was not something that happened. Women by themselves did not go to foreign countries to uh, be missionaries. Some denominations had started to allow single women to accompany married couples as assistants in, in sort of certain con- contexts and stuff like that, but Southern Baptists did not. And But there was change in the air. People were talking about it. They were saying, man, we've got this great need, and we've got so few people that want to go. And if there's women who want to go and share the gospel in these places, then should we not let them go do that? And so, um, again, women were doing jobs that previously had been reserved for men because there weren't any men to do them. And an incident happened in in sort of the Southern Baptist world um, where a married couple had been appointed to go to, uh, I think it was China, as missionaries. And the woman had a sister who also wanted to go to be the companion um, of, of her sister. And so they asked that the Southern Baptist Convention would appoint her to as a missionary also. And they were like, well, it seems weird. We can't deny this lady going with her sister. And so they, they allowed it to happen, but that sort of put the crack, right? That, that, that got the foot in the door. Um, and within a relatively short amount of time, uh, the convention had said, yes, we will appoint, um, single women who, who, uh, who feel called to the missionary endeavor, um, uh, to go to the field as single women. Um, and so in 1873, the first, uh, Miss Moon, um, went as the first mission, female single missionary, uh, to be appointed by the Southern Baptist Convention. Except guess what? It wasn't Lottie. It was her sister, actually. Um, Edmonia, which is a great name. Um, Edmonia Moon was the first single woman appointed by the Southern Baptist Convention to, to be a missionary. She actually left for the field in China, the same area that Lottie would end up in, about a year or so before Lottie left. But it was part of the, the whole, you know, connection there that, that, that continued to stir in Lottie's heart to go to. And so after Lottie's preacher preached a, me, uh, a message on missions in February of 1873, she went home and she, she, wrote in letters to other people that she she prayed all night and that she felt like she heard God's call that she was supposed to go uh, and be a missionary in China. And she said, as clear as a bell. And so she finished out that year as a teacher there in Cartersville, Georgia. She resigned. And on July 7th, 17, 1873, she was officially appointed by the Southern Baptist Convention as a missionary to China, joining her sister in in northern China, the Shantung province, in October of 1873. So now here's the question that maybe arises in your head. So why is it that Lottie is the one that we remember um, when her sister uh, was the first female single Southern Baptist missionary? Um, how come we don't know who Edmonia Moon is, but we've heard of Lottie Moon? 
Well, it's a function of longevity and long suffering. Edmonia uh, was only able to stay in the mission field for about four years. Uh, she got to China and basically she was sick the entire time. Okay. And so the, the, the climate and, and the, unsanitary conditions, she basically stayed sick the entire time, and eventually her health suffered from it so much that she was forced to, to return to the States. Um, but Lottie, on the other hand, was a picture of endurance, determination, faithfulness, and eventually of love for the Chinese people, whom she would serve for the next 39 years. So she, and what we see is that she became an example for not only the Southern Baptist convention, but for the South and for the United States in general. And that's kind of, again, this idea that we see in verse 16. Paul writes, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Right? So what Paul says is he says, as people looked at my life, my ministry, the patience that God had shown me, the mercy that God had shown me, despite who I had been before, as people saw that, it turned people's hearts towards God. People recognized how good and gracious and loving a God we had because of who God had, had made out of me, you could say. Paul recognizes that his salvation and his calling are a picture to the world of God's patience. That from all outward signs, he was the last person who anybody would expect to be a follower of Christ, yet alone, let alone a, a minister for Christ. And yet it was through that power and through that patience of God that, that, uh, that God displayed his, his, his character. The same thing's true of Lottie. Again, um, being a four foot three, uh, single woman, um, walking into, in many ways, a hostile environment with relatively little support from home seems crazy. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that you would do. Finances were always a problem for missionaries in this era. Um, the Western world was kind of stumbling to, to catch on to this idea, to, to raise up missionaries, to raise funds. We may sometimes think, you know, sending missionaries to places is just what the church does, right? It's just something we do. We take up missions offerings and we just do that. That wasn't how people thought then, okay? Foreign missions was sort of a new idea in a lot of ways for um, the American church of the 1800s. And so there were those issues, difficult conditions, right? Poor living arrangements, lack of hygiene, sewer systems, stuff like that, living in communities of, of basically agricultural subsistence poverty, um, there was a general anti-Western sentiment in, in China at the time. In certain cities, there were, there were treaties with, particularly with port cities. And so what would happen is Westerners could legally, uh, they could go to these port cities and then they could have legal protections because of treaties that had been made between countries. But those protections disappeared as soon as you got outside of those treaty cities. And so, for example, the story of Lottie's uh, mentor, and honestly, the, the real trailblazer of, of mission, Southern Baptist missions in uh, China was a lady named Sally Holmes. So Sally had gone to China with her husband. They were both appointed as missionaries. When they got there, um, they buried a child um, while they were uh, uh, on the field there in China. And while she was pregnant with her second child, 
her husband went out one day with some other Chinese citizens to confront a group of robbers, and they were brutally murdered. Um, and so she was now a single woman in China, pregnant. And what was she to do? Well, against all custom and against all advice, she stayed in China. She gave birth to her son. She raised him there. And much like uh, a lady named Elizabeth Elliot, who would do this 100 years later, she decided to stay and minister among the people who had murdered her husband. And so Lottie, this lady, acted as a, as a mentor to Lottie and, and kind of depicts some of that anti-Western sentiment. She would walk down the streets of, of Ting Chow, which is the city that they were sort of headquartered in, and, and people would walk by Lottie and call her to her face foreign devil. Uh, and that was what she dealt with on kind of a daily basis in, in the city. And she would be courteous to adults, deferential. She would appeal to their kindness and to their common humanity and say, I'm not any different than you. I'm not a devil. I'm just a person here trying to, to share the good news with you. But sort of hilariously, when little kids would walk up to her and say foreign devil, she would scold them. Okay, And she would chastise them for their rudeness and how that, that was not the way you treated elders. And she would tell them to shut up and sit down, and there are several stories where within 30 minutes, she was teaching them hymns and catechism and having all these little Chinese kids who didn't speak English singing Jesus Loves Me or, or whatever else within a short amount of time. Um, that was the kind of, of, of tough little lady um, that she was and the kind of thing she had to deal with on a regular basis. On top of all these, there were the difficulties of cultural and religious uh, issues, right? So, again, women... And men lived separate lives in general in, in Chinese culture. And so that meant that as a woman, her primary uh, engagement in ministry was to other women and, and to children. And so she would go town to town, try to be invited into people's homes and have conversations with women um, and, and all these kind of things. But there were a number of cultural practices that were particularly um, despicable. Um, and that we have sort of, uh, you, you may be aware of. So there was this practice in Chinese culture of foot binding. And so what they would do is they would take, having a really small foot was considered attractive and desirable. And so what they would do is when girls were, were you know, probably barely older or around the age of Ellie and, and Alice, they would take their four, their big toe, their four toes, and they would take those four toes and they would bend them back and under the foot and they would push them back and bind them until eventually they would break and and that would cause the foot to be really short. There'd just be one big toe, basically, and and that was considered to be beautiful. And so you were you were expected to go through this process. Little girls, even if it crippled them, then they were expected to do their daily chores and go about their tasks on hands and knees um, because that was how desirable it was to have these these uh, deformed feet. Um, polygamy was a a. Uh, common practice and, and, and this weird thing that happened too of bullying matriarchs. Okay. So you had a husband and his mom lived in the house and she was a bully to all his wives and sort of kept them all in, in place and, and, and whatever. And so that there was an interesting little thing where, uh, when she would meet people, um, Chinese women, they would say, well, why aren't you married? Um, that's the only thing that women are good for, right? Of course, why would you not get married? And she had this easy answer where she said, well, I'm scared of my mother-in-law. I don't want to have a mother-in-law who beats me and, and, and tears me down. And all the women would say, well, I understand that, right? That's a pretty good reason not to get married. Um, because it was, it was, 
intrinsic in the culture. They talked about the fact that she would even deal with this of young women who weren't even married yet. It was almost like they were practicing for it. There was a bickering, argumentative, putting each other down, almost like they were getting themselves ready to be the matriarch of a household. And she had to work through all those things. Um, religious toleration was different in different places or whatever, but there's always the problem in any foreign culture where when you reject the native um, religious traditions and you embrace a new faith, that there's going to be social consequences for that. Not to mention all the rigors of being essentially an itinerant evangelist and teacher, long treks into isolated countrysides and villages, living away from home for weeks at a time. And yet Lottie became known for her grit for her determination in all of these things. As other missionaries burned out or bailed out, Lottie demonstrated a spirit-filled determination and perseverance that grew into a deep devotion to the Chinese people and joy in her work. She was living her life for God's glory in this context. And again, we kind of see that same idea at the end of this passage as Paul is talking about his own conversion, about the grace that he has been shown and the opportunity that he has had to serve God. All of a sudden, he busts into a doxology in verse 17. So you notice there, like, all of a sudden, he kind of pauses on his biographical description of himself and just all of a sudden says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, right? It's like Paul, as he thinks about his own life and conversion, like he can't, he has to just pause for a minute and say, glory be to God for what he has done in my life. Well, again, I think that's what's going, Lottie's whole life was like that. Okay? Like her whole life, as she, as she continues to serve and continues to minister, um, her life becomes a doxology. The difficulties increase. Age creeps in. But she is determined to faithfully serve Christ in this place. Lottie stayed in Ting Chau, the coastal city, until around 1885. And then you know what she decided? She said, there's too much opportunity, and we already got a couple of missionaries here. I'm going into the interior. There's a city called Pingtu, which at the time had the 12th largest population center in the world, okay? Um, no missionary had ever established work there. There was no diplomatic protection. It was 100, 150 miles from, from diplomatic protection. And so what did Lottie do? She said, I'm going to go there all by myself as a single woman to, to take the message of the gospel to these people. And so she, she left several exploratory kind of, kind of, uh, missions to, to, to figure out the city. And then eventually she settled there and had a long and fruitful ministry there. Um, and, and one thing that we kind of forget about in these stories is obviously as, as Westerners, as Americans, we remember the Americans who, who went over there. Um, but, but the real uh, successes that we see in all these places are when the indigenous people become believers and then are able to, to enter into ministry and evangelize and share their faith. And that happened in, uh, in the city of Pingtu. Uh, a man by the name of Li Shou Ting um, came to Christ and would become one of the greatest evangelists of the era in, in uh, the North China region, personally baptizing upwards of 10,000 people. Uh, and drawing them to Christ over his lifetime. And so, um, again, that's sort of like these success stories that we probably never hear those stories because we don't know who these foreign nationals are. We don't know their stories. We just know the stories of the people who left out from us and went over there. So as she lived there in Pingtu, um, 
1887, about two years after she'd gotten there, uh, she wrote a letter that would go down in history and have huge effects on uh, the cause of Southern Baptist missions. Um, she wrote a letter um, back home calling for more money, more missionaries, more de- dedication uh, to facilitate the great work of evangelism. Um, and as a response to that letter, that year at the convention, the executive committee of the Women's Missionary Societies, which was soon to turn into the WMU, the Women's Missionary Union. So if you're from Southern Baptist circles, you know a whole lot about the WMU and the things that they do in each church and stuff like that. The Women's Missionary Union was formed. And by the end of the year, the WMU had raised enough money to send three women to help Lottie. That was the beginning of an annual offering that would end up shaping the denomination uh, and shaping international missions. And this is what Lottie wrote. She said, please say to the new missionaries that they are coming to a life of hardship responsibility, and constant self-denial. They must live the greater part of their time in Chinese houses, in close contact with the people. They will be alone in the interior, and they will need to be strong and courageous. If the joy of the Lord be their strength, the blessedness of the work will be more than enough to compensate them for their hardships. Let them come rejoicing to suffer for the sake of the Lord and Master who freely gave his life for them. That was the call that she that she sent out, and people started to listen. As she continued through the years working in Ping Tu, fruitful work, but conditions continued to deteriorate. Um, political unrest. If you go back, you can just see it's it's one thing after another in the late 1800s and early 1900s. An event called the Boxer Rebellion is one of the ones that stands out in that. But infighting between the Chinese, between the Japanese, between American forces, between all these different interests. War, famine that led to dire circumstances um, throughout the country. And even in the midst of all that, as an older woman, she said, I have never found mission work more enjoyable. I constantly thank God that he has given me work that I love so much. In the midst of that famine, Lottie began to give away her own food. She would take her meager stipend, her meager resources, and she would use it to help the the people in her church and in her community, giving away her own food during the famine so that other people would have something. In 1911, a fellow missionary, Dr. Adams, came to assist her. And when he found her, um, he found this tiny, shriveled up little woman who weighed about 50 pounds. Dr. Adams demanded that she return to the U.S. to to recuperate, to receive medical treatment. Um, at this point, she was dying, and she she didn't really have a whole lot to to say against that, and so she agreed to it. Um, she was she was taken back to the coast uh, and put on a ship uh, that was going to stop in Japan and then set sail for America. In the sea between China and Japan, one night Lottie was there in a cabin, obviously um, suffering. Nobody really expected her to live until she got to um, America. Uh, another missionary named Miss Miller was sort of her companion and attendant. And Lottie was kind of in and out of consciousness. And at one point she woke up and said, Jesus loves me. They are weak, but he is strong. Do you know that song, Mrs. Miller? Mrs. Miller said, yes, ma'am, many, yes, ma'am, many is the time that you have taught that song to the Chinese, haven't you? That night, she would go in and out of consciousness, but every once in a while she would wake up and, and the thing that she said over and over again was, we are weak, 
but he is strong. We are weak, but he is strong. The ship slowly made its way and stopped in Kobe, Japan. And there on Christmas Eve, Lottie opened her eyes after a period of, of unconsciousness. She smiled silently to Mrs. Miller. And then with great effort, she raised her hands like this, which is the traditional greeting um, of fond relationship that the Chinese give. She laid her hands back down, she closed her eyes, and she passed into eternity. Uh, that was Christmas Eve. Her remains were cremated at Yokohama, and on December 26th, uh, on December 26th, and she was returned to the foreign mission board in a little paper bag. They put her ashes in a, in a little box and mailed it back to uh, the Foreign Mission Board. Lottie's decline and death had a shaming effect on the Southern Baptist world, and then a lionizing effect on the Southern Baptist world. That this woman would give her life to the cause of taking Christ to China only to starve to death for lack of support from Southern Baptists in the U.S. And so as, as, a, as a part of that, this annual missions offering arose and gained steam in her honor. And so we still have it today. And if you've been a part of a Southern Baptist church, you know, uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is a offering where every dime goes to the cause of foreign missions. It's taken up every year. And to date, it has raised somewhere in the range of $4 billion in, in, over the course of, of its existence. So Lottie uh, wrote a letter, and, sh and she said this. She said, the needs of these people press upon my soul, and I cannot be silent. It is grievous to think that these human souls going down to death without even one opportunity of hearing the name of Jesus. Once more, I urge upon the consciences of my Christian brethren and sisters and sisters the claims of these people among whom I dwell. Here I am working alone in a city of many thousands of inhabitants with numberless villages clustered around or stretching away in the illuminate distance. How many can I reach? Why are the laborers so few? Where we have four, we should have no less than 100. Are these wild words? They would not seem so were the church of God awake to her high privilege and her weighty responsibilities. That was the challenge that she laid down to Southern Baptists. And, and here's the deal. This is the reality. This is why the Southern Baptist Convention exists. All right? For all of the goofiness, for all of the politics, for all of the headlines, for all of the, uh, you know, announcements that they make about this issue and that issue, the truth is... It exists for one purpose, maybe one and a half, okay? It exists for international missions. Because Baptist ecclesiology, Baptist belief on how the church functions, basically says we're all individual churches. We do our own things, and we are accountable to our own uh, bodies of elders and things like that. The only reason we get together is because we recognize that there are certain things that small individual churches can't do on their own very well. The primary one of those is missions. The secondary one is education. 
Okay. And so that's the other function that I would say is the half function is for us to have seminaries that we can co-fund and send and send pastors to. But the main reason the Southern Baptist Convention exists is for the cause of foreign missions, to take the gospel to the world. It has no meaning other than that, no ultimate meaning. Lottie Moon recognized that. She encouraged it in the people of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so um, that offering, like I said, is still something that we, that the, the Southern Baptist churches take up every year. And what I would like to do this year is that we would take that up this year. So what we're going to do is, is I'm going to put out on the table, and of course, I left them at home tonight, but I'm going to put out on the table um, some red envelopes. They're just going to be little red envelopes, blank envelopes. And this is what I would like you to do. Over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas Eve, um, if if you would consider how you can give and sacrifice for the cause of international missions. I don't know what that looks like for you. You may have money that you've already thought of, of ways that you could give and serve and use it or whatever. It may mean that you have to pull back on something um, this year. But the existence of the Lottie Moon mission offering is is a function of saying there is a great task ahead of us um, and in, something that is behooven on us to be concerned with. Something that, just like she said, if we recognized, if we were awake, and we talk about that idea so much at College Street, right? If we were awake to the high privilege and weighty responsibility is to be followers of Jesus Christ, um, we would be more concerned with uh, a lost and dying world. Next door, across the street, and certainly uh, around the world. And so we're going to take up an offering over the next few weeks. If you want to give at some point, um, what I want you to do is grab one of those red envelopes and put your, your donation in there. You can put cash in there. You can put a check in there. What we will do is we will add around Christmas, we will add that to the mother church's donation and make, you know, kind of a distinction so that we know how much that we gave and stuff. But I would like that to be something that, that we do on a regular basis, man. There's a whole lot about being a Southern Baptist that doesn't interest me. Okay, um, but there are certain things like our commitment to international missions that are critical. And and honestly, folks, we do it better than anybody does. Okay, um, it has been something that we have focused on for a hundred years plus, and it's something that we have made a priority. It's something we're good at. That and potlucks. That's it. Okay, <laughs> right? And so um, it's it's something that we is is substantial that we can say. Man, I, this is what Christ has called us to do, um, and our hearts should be focused on these things. Amen? Um, that's Lottie Moon. Let me just say, man, if you have a daughter and you want to name her Charlotte, you wouldn't be hurting my feelings, okay? Um, if, if we had had uh, one more daughter, she probably would have been a Charlotte, uh, and we'd have called her Lottie um, because she is an incredible lady, um, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, someone we should remember, someone whose life we should consider, and someone whose faithfulness we should imitate. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for uh, your goodness and graciousness to us. God, we thank you um, for the life of, of this little lady um, from Virginia, somebody that... Um, God, we have never met, uh, and and uh, many of us probably would not know um, even her name, and yet her influence on on our denomination, on our convention, um, on on the world, and the the 
mission, uh, the, the energy and drive towards uh, international missions, and that she has had an outsized influence on those things. God, we thank you for the faithfulness of, of Lottie Moon. Um, God, we ask that you would impress upon our hearts the great calling that it is to, to take the gospel um, to the world, um, that we would take it to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God, you've called that as a responsibility for every single one of us. And while maybe not every single one of us will, will go to the mission field, God, we can all um, support that uh, endeavor um, through our prayers, um, through our giving, and God, many other ways that we can support and care for, uh, for missionaries and, and those that they serve. God, we thank you for this time. God, help us to um, recognize what you have called us to in terms of mission. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. see you. Glad you're here tonight. Um, I really enjoy doing these biographical messages. I don't know about y'all, but like I look forward to them every year when we talk about um, and do this. Um, 
And, and again, I think it's something that God calls us to. It's not just a neat thing to do. It's not just a helpful thing to do. It's something that God calls us to remember these people, um, to, to have heroes um, of the faith who, who inspire us and challenge us and, and uh, encourage us to think about things in a different way. And so, anyway, glad you're here. Um, hope you have a great week. Uh, here to spend addiction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. sing with us. You're welcome. All right. Sundays we'd be here at three. We rehearse. Come on. Is that a yes?
Tim, you don't even know. I'd like to be, I'd like to do some kind of, find a perfect, like at some church that does like really good, like Christmas cantatas. Like, like it's a thing. Like these are like people that actually go to this and actually do it one year because I, I love choral stuff. Yeah. But I'm, I have to have somebody who will tell me because uh, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I'm not really that kind of musician. Right. But I was in, I, I was in honor singers in high school. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was like, I enjoyed that. Right. I love it again sometimes. Yeah. I've always. That's the reason I was in singers in the first place. Because those cantatas, those Christmas cantatas we do. Yeah. The first the first semester we ended up to uh, so the first semester of high school, uh, of the year in high school. All we would do is prepare for this hour and a half cantata that we would do at uh, First Baptist Parable. Then we would do a show at uh, 
have some education on how to sing correctly. She's a little hesitant. I'm not,
That goes to sick in there, India. And Julie's a slacker, man. She gave me like four or five. That's a little bit of a 